we, uh, we're getting uh, reports uh, from time to time, uh, regularly, I should say, um, from uh, TV viewers. When we have an opportunity to, to put um, Healing School on uh, TV, we got something just, uh, well, I saw it last week. I'm not sure exactly when it came in, but there was a, a lady that was healed of cancer. She had a lump in her breast. It was uh, diagnosed as cancer, and she was healed of that. The doctors now declare her to be cancer-free. And, um, and so we know that healing is, is the truth. We know that healing is for all. We can uh, prove that by a number of scriptures. For example, Jesus, the Bible says about, uh, about Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 17, it says, Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The Bible teaches conclusively that the same time that Jesus bare our sins on the cross by shedding his blood, that blood was shed also for the bearing or the taking away of our sickness. But you don't have to get too far talking about the subject of healing before somebody that's been schooled in church doctrine says, yeah, but what about Paul's thorn? And the idea about Paul's thorn is very simply this. Whether it's, whether it's identified this way or not, this is what Paul's thorn is all about in church doctrine. It is very simply this. God sometimes gives his most devout and most committed children diseases that they are to bear throughout their life to develop their forbearance, develop their patience, and to to deepen their piety, whatever that means. Never have figured out what deepening your piety means. But that's basically the, the idea behind Paul's thorn. Now, Paul's thorn is something that we have to talk about from time to time. And, and, uh, and I hope that I don't say anything new to you tonight. I hope you've heard this 50 times because I want you to, to do two things. Number one, I want you to be more and more established in what the Bible says about healing belonging to you and that there is no objection, no scriptural or otherwise objection to hinder you from either believing in and or receiving the healing power of God to, to heal your bodies. The second reason is I want you to know this subject well enough to where you can help other people that are bound by the the ignorance or the wrong doctrine that the church world teaches concerning Paul's thorn in the flesh. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, let's start in verse 1. It really doesn't start talking about the thorn in the flesh until verses 7 through 10. But I want to get the context so that you can understand what Paul is talking about. Paul said, it is not expedient for me doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, I'm not going to tell you about myself. He's just concluded in the previous chapter, even though he didn't write in chapter and verses. It's divided that way for reference sake. He concluded in the previous chapter telling about all the things that he's endured as suffering for the Lord, as serving the Lord, and all the problems and difficulties and stuff like that the devil has tried to throw in his way but couldn't stop him through. So he says, I will not, it's not expedient, it's not helpful for me to glory He has a lot to glory about. You need to understand that. He has a lot that he could brag about. He's saying that the imprisonments didn't stop me. He's saying that being shipwrecked didn't stop me. He's saying being beaten with rods didn't stop me. But then he says, it's not helpful. That's what expedient means. It's not helpful or profitable for me to talk about those things too much. Then he says, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, the contrast he's making is very simply this. He's saying, I don't have anything to brag about in and of myself. That's not helpful. But I will brag about the things that have been revealed to me. Not because they have anything to do with me, but because God revealed them. That's what he's saying. I will doubtless come. I'm sorry. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. And he's talking about the visions and revelations. He said, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. 
Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. Now, everybody agrees that Paul's talking about himself. Verse 1 tells us that very conclusively. He says, I'm not going to brag about myself, but I will talk about visions and revelations. Well, the visions and revelations he's talking about that he has access to reveal are the things that were revealed to him. So he says, such a one was caught up into heaven, into the third heaven. So there must be three. There are three heavens. There's the atmosphere of the earth. There's what we know of as space, outer space. And there is the dwelling place of God, the place called heaven. Paul said, I was caught up into the dwelling place of God, the third heaven. Now notice also he said that he couldn't tell whether he was in the body or out of the body. Folks, if you get a hold of this, it'll set you free from your flesh. There is no difference. We, have, we, from a natural standpoint, we, mankind as a whole, has from the natural standpoint such a fear of dying. Well, once you die, you don't know you're dead. Because the man on the inside is the same whether he's in the body or out of the body. Now, Paul had to be by himself. Because if I was with Paul praying or, or we were just minding our own business and he was caught up into heaven physically, I'd be able to tell that, wouldn't you? So he had to be alone. He said, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. He couldn't tell. There's no difference from a spiritual standpoint, from an understanding point of view about you, the real you, the eternal part of you. You can't tell whether you've got a body or not. Well, why are we so body conscious here on the earth then? Because everything in our life is, is, is geared and aimed toward the pleasing or the satisfaction of our flesh. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Paul seemed to have gotten to the place where he couldn't tell whether he had a body or not. When he was caught up into heaven, he certainly didn't know. He seemed to be the same. He was the same in essence. He was the same in his, in his, uh, in his senses. I don't want to say physical senses, but in his senses of who he was and his knowledge and so forth without a body as he was with one. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I knew of such a man, verse 3, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. How that he was caught up into paradise. Now, he's already talked about third heaven. So paradise has got to be a reference, another word, another name that he's using for heaven. He's not talking about paradise like the, the thief on the cross when Jesus said to him, I say unto you this day, you shall be with me in paradise. That was in the lower part of the earth. That was not the dwelling place of God. So the word paradise is just another word that, God, that Paul uses for heaven. So heaven must be a pretty cool place. He calls it paradise. He said how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which is not lawful. Literally, the word is possible for a man to utter. Now, what is he saying? He's saying, I was caught up into a place that I've, where I heard and saw things that I cannot relate to you in words. That's how good heaven is, folks. There's no comparison between heaven and, and earth. Your best day on earth doesn't even rate when it comes to heaven. Heaven is such a magnificent place you can't describe it. We get glimpses here and there through the scripture and get a little bit of a, of a clue about certain things, just minor, minor, minor things. But Paul said, I was caught up to where God lives. And man, you can't even describe that place. He's not saying God wouldn't let me tell you. He's saying I don't have words to use. Of such a one will I glory. That goes back to verse 1. He said I'm not going to glory about the things that have happened to me physically in this earth. But I will glory about the one that was caught up into heaven and heard things and saw things that I can't describe. Of such a one I will glory. 
yet of myself, I will not glory, but in my infirmities. In other words, he's saying, I didn't have anything to do with it. God caught me up. God took me there, and I'm sure glad he did, but it didn't have anything to do with me. For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that which he heareth of me. Now, verse 6 is a little bit confusing, but there is one and only one point. I don't want to take a lot of time with it, but there's one point that I want you to see. Paul is not trying to lift himself up because of the things God showed him. His attitude is one of humility, not pride. Do you see that? That's going to be important when he moves on to verse 7. Because in speaking about the revelations, the abundance of revelations, he said, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now let me ask you a question. Who's trying to exalt him and who's trying to humble him? See, most of the church world teaches this from the standpoint that God gave Paul some kind of thorn, some kind of physical affliction to keep him from being lifted up in pride. Well, didn't Paul just say in verse 6 that he didn't have any problem with pride? Didn't he just say that his attitude was one of humility because of the revelations? Why would God do something if Paul was already operating in uh, an error or spirit of humility? Hello? See, the church teaching is God gave Paul something to keep him from being lifted up in pride. Well, he just said in verse 6 that he wouldn't glory in himself. He was pleased and delighted that God caught him up into heaven, but he didn't have anything to do with it. And in fact, he was careful about how he talked about it so that people wouldn't think more of him because God did something for him. He wanted people to think of him only what they saw and heard of him. In other words, he wanted it to be about the message and the fruit of his ministry and not what people would think about him as an individual. Are you out there? Verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Who's wanting to exalt him and who's wanting to humble him? Who's wanting to exalt Paul and who's wanting to keep him from being exalted? Well, If God's wanting to humble him, if God's wanting to keep him from being exalted above measure because of the revelations, why didn't God just spread the revelations around between different people? If God's the one behind humbling Paul, why didn't God just hold back on some of the revelations? He didn't have to show him everything he showed him. He didn't have to tell him everything he told him. Why did he do that? He could just as easily have had some of the letters written to the church by other people and give them the revelations and show them other things too. His attitude is already one of humility. So it's not like God's trying to keep him from getting proud. I want you to see this. I'm going to take my time with this. I want you to see it because that's the whole basis behind the church doctrine, the church world's doctrine about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Because God did not want Paul in pride, he gave him some kind of physical affliction, some kind of disease that he wouldn't cure him or heal him of. But that's not what it says. First of all, it says that the, the, in order to keep him from being lifted up, uh, exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to him a thorn in the flesh. But whose messenger is it? Is it God's messenger? No, it's the messenger of Satan. 
So who's trying to keep him from being exalted? Satan. What does that mean? That means God doesn't have a problem with Paul being exalted. Folks, the church world's idea is that God will humble you and keep you from getting big-headed. When in fact the exact opposite is true. The Bible says humble yourself before the Lord that he may exalt you. Well, isn't humbling himself before the Lord exactly what is described in verse 6? And what's the result? God's exalting the guy. But the devil doesn't like that. God didn't have a problem with it, but the devil doesn't like that. Now, I know that's completely opposite from what the church world teaches, but that's what the Bible says. So in order for Paul to keep from being exalted among the people because of the revelations that God gave him, the devil comes in and throws a a wrench in the works. What does he do? He gives him a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him, lest I should be exalted above measure. And I'm going to go ahead and read the rest of it, and then we'll come back and make some comments. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it, keep that word it in mind, that it might depart from me. And he, the Lord, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul goes back and concludes, Most most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. As I said, the church world interprets this and teaches this, that God gave Paul some kind of sickness, some kind of physical condition. Some go so far as to describe what it was. But he gave him some kind of physical condition to keep him from being lifted up in pride. And Paul asked God three times to take away what he gave him the physical condition, the sickness that God gave to Paul. And the Lord said, as as a result of each of the three prayers that Paul prays about it, the Lord said, no, you're going to have to keep this one so you can glorify me. So Paul concludes and says, most gladly, therefore, because now I know it's the will of God for me to stay sick, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in the things that God gives me because when I I found out when I'm weak, then I'm not strong. I do these things so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, we'll take this apart little by little. But there's one thing I want you to understand. The, the, the overall big picture understanding of this that you need to get is that this teaching is used worldwide and has been for centuries. Two centuries, as a matter of fact particularly here in America, before that, all over the world. But this, this doctrine, this idea, this teaching, this church, uh, well, this church doctrine, church theology, is used to produce a, 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 an understanding or to, to attempt to produce an understanding in the minds and in the understanding of church people worldwide that God doesn't always heal everybody. And if God didn't heal Paul, who was the most devout of all of his servants, at that point in time, if God didn't heal Paul, then we can't know for sure that God will heal us. Now, that's what the church wants you to believe out of this. Forget the devil for a minute. This is the church. This is the teaching of the church. This is not the teaching of the world. This is not what you learn in satanic churches. This is what you learn from the modern-day church. 
so that the end result is you can't really know for sure if God will heal you or not. Therefore, it gives rise to the understanding or the prayer, Lord, heal me if it's your will. And the part that's never said about that is the understood reverse side of that, the other side of the coin. If it's not your will, then help me to be patient. Help me to learn what I'm supposed to learn. Help me to deepen my piety. Again, whatever that means. Folks, that is the bottom line of Paul's thorn, the teaching of Paul's thorn. But let me ask you a question. Why is it that Paul's thorn didn't keep him from preaching healing? Why is it that Paul's thorn didn't keep people from receiving healing in Paul's ministry during his day? If it's supposed to make us question, why didn't it make the people question in Paul's day? Now, as I said, some will go so far as to explain or describe some terrible disease that Paul had. One person, uh, one renowned minister that, uh, that is still quoted extensively on this subject in one of the main denominations here in America says that Paul had ophthalmalia. And they'd go on to describe how that ophthalmalia caused pus to run from Paul's eyes. It was a terrible, debilitating disease. It was very painful and so forth. It was horrible to look at. It was horrible to experience. And go, they go into great, great detail about that. Well, turn back with me to Acts chapter 19. We're going to come back to 2 Corinthians, so you might want to put something here in your Bible to come back quickly. Acts chapter 19 tells us about Paul in a certain city, the city of Ephesus. It tells about how that Paul got certain people healed, or certain, I'm sorry, certain people filled with the Holy Ghost, saved and filled with the Holy Ghost in the first part of the chapter. And then it says, uh, well, let's start reading in, uh, in verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Ghost came on them, and they spake with tongues and prophesied. And all the men were about twelve. And he went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months, disputing and persuading the things concerning the kingdom of God. But when the divers were hardened and believed not, that's the Jews, when they wouldn't believe, that's who would be in the synagogue is the Jews. When they believed not, and but spoke evil of that way before the multitude, meaning the way of Jesus, believing in Jesus, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years. So he's been there two years and three months. This continued by the space of two years so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, folks, you have to conclude at this point in time in Paul's ministry, you have to conclude that he has this thorn in the flesh. And if it is this terrible eye disease, as is described, look what happens when Paul is preaching with this pus stuff running out of his eyes. And God, verse 11, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. Paul's condition, as it's described in, in much of the mainline church doctrine, didn't stop God from using him, did it? And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. What happened? So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, I don't know about you, but wouldn't that be a delightful thing to receive one of these pus handkerchiefs from Paul? Because the description of ophthalmalia is that it's a terribly contagious disease. Wouldn't you be delighted to get a handkerchief from the body of Paul? Folks, I want to make a joke out of this because it's so stupid. It is so absolutely ridiculous 
for the church to conclude that Paul had some terrible eye disease and that terrible eye disease would, be, would not be enough to keep people from having faith to receive their own healing. If Paul's got this terrible disease and people ask, Paul, what's wrong with your eyes? And he says, well, it's the thorn in the flesh that God gave me because of the abundance of the revelations. He didn't want me to be lifted up in pride. And I prayed for God to take it away from me. But, and he said, I, I, no, you're supposed to keep this. So I'm going to glorify God in my infirmities. But don't worry, God will heal you. Where's there going to be faith for that? Wait a minute. If God will heal me, but he won't heal you, then that means God's a respecter of persons. But you're telling us God will do the same thing for everybody. If God wants to heal me, why did he want to heal you? Well, there's just a reason. How's that going to fly? How's that going to work? Turn with me over to Acts chapter 28. Here's the last thing that we have record of in Paul's ministry, really the ministering part of his life. We know that he goes to Rome and spends two years there. But here's really the last part of Paul's ministry. He's on the road or he's on the, uh, the journey to Rome and they're shipwrecked and they're cast upon the island of Melita. And it says, um, well, let's start in verse 7, Acts 28, verse 7. And the same quarters were, the possess- were possessions of the chief man of the island, whose name was Publius, who received us and lodged us three days courteously. And it came to pass that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and of a bloody flux to whom Paul entered in and prayed and laid his hands on him and healed him. So when this was done, others also which had diseases in the island came and were healed. Now let me read this to you from some other translations. See if I can get it real quick here. Yeah, this is verse 9, Acts chapter 28 and verse 9. And another translation says, And when this was done, the rest also that had diseases in the island came and were cured. Another translation says, And when this took place, all the others in the island who had diseases came and were made well. Another translation says, After this happened, everyone on the island brought their sick people to Paul, and they were all healed. I could go example after example where it talks about everybody was healed and nobody was left out. Now, again, we have to conclude that if the church doctrine about Paul's thorn is correct, then Paul is laying hands on people with this pus stuff running out of his eyes or whatever the condition was that he had. To which I have to ask the question, if Paul's thorn in the flesh did not stop him from preaching healing and inspiring faith in the hearers to receive their healing then why does the church world use Paul's thorn as the basis, the foundation for their doctrine or belief on the subject of healing? It's a legitimate question, folks. If Paul healed the sick with this thorn in the flesh, whatever you want to think it is, if Paul preached healing, And inspired faith. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We know that Jesus was hindered by the unbelief of the people from ministering the healing power of God to them in his own hometown of Nazareth. We can't expect Paul to be doing greater works than Jesus in that context. If Jesus couldn't overcome the unbelief of the the people of the city of Nazareth to minister healing power and do mighty works among them, then how is Paul going to be able to do it? If Paul can do it and Jesus didn't, then Paul's greater than Jesus. Well, I don't know anybody that would step out and say that. Do you? So if this thorn in the flesh didn't keep the people in Paul's ministry or in Paul's day from receiving their healing, then why should it hinder people from receiving their healing today? Turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's talk about what this thorn in the flesh is. 
Well, another idea that many in the church world have is that when Paul was on the road to Damascus and he was blinded by the light, the light shined from heaven that was brighter than a noonday sun. You remember he was blinded by the glory of that light? And after three days, Ananias was instructed of the Lord. The layman Ananias was instructed to go to where Paul was, lay hands on him to receive his sight. You remember the story? Well, many people say in the church world, they'll say, well, Paul's eye disease or his eye condition, whatever it was, probably started when he was blinded by the glory of that light. But the fact is that's impossible. You remember we started in chapter 12 in verse 1 or verse 2 rather where he said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. He's talking about how that man was caught up into heaven. The book of 2 Corinthians was written 26 years after Acts chapter 9 when Paul was converted. 26 years, not 14 years. 26 years. That means that by the time that Paul speaks of the man in Christ that he knew 14 years ago, his own experience 14 years ago, he's been saved for 12 years. That means that the people that say that this happened because of the glory of the light, the light blinding Paul, the light from heaven blinding Paul, are absolutely wrong. Furthermore, it's hard for me to understand how anybody could say that a light shining from heaven that magnified the glory of God that caused Paul to come into the kingdom of God was a thorn in the flesh or a messenger of Satan baffles me. How could God's glory being displayed be a thorn, be a, uh, the messenger of Satan? Well, if church doctrine is wrong about that point, what else are they wrong about on this subject? Are you out there? Back to verse 7. Paul said, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. Who's writing this? Paul. Who is Paul? Paul is, by his own admission, one of the, the, uh, the Pharisee of the Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin and so forth. That means, by the things that he describes about his past, that means he's been trained as a rabbi. He's been trained as a priest. Now, part of the training of the priest that you and I wouldn't know about unless we studied it out and found out, and and don't take my word for it, study it out for yourself. But you'll find when you're studying, you'll find that the rabbis, particularly those that were trained to be the priest, which he was, were expected and required to memorize the law and the prophets. So basically, what we know of as the Old Testament is memorized. Paul has committed to memory. So when Paul uses the term, a thorn in the flesh, since we know that that same term or similar terms are used in Old Testament language, Paul has to know that. He absolutely has to know that. He's not picking something out of the air. The Holy Spirit is not prompting Paul to say something that's in the Old Testament that he doesn't know about. That's one of the reasons that God used him in the way that he did was because of Paul's knowledge of Old Testament stuff. That's one of the reasons that God used Paul to reveal the the relationship that we have in Christ Jesus as opposed to the law of Moses and not Peter. Because the Holy Spirit could reveal things to Paul about the Old Testament that Peter didn't know was there because of Paul's training. So when Paul uses the term thorn in the flesh, he knows exactly what he's saying and what it refers to in the Old Testament scriptures. Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 33, or if you want to, you can turn back with me. If not, you can stay here and I'll just read it to you. Numbers chapter 33 is one of the places where this term is used. 
one of the places that Paul would know that this term is used. Numbers chapter 33, verse, uh, well, the chapter is, is where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, talking about going into the promised land. He's talking about, here's what you do when you go into the promised land and so forth. He says in... Um, um, well, let's start in verse 53. He said, And you shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell therein. Talking about the promised land. For I have given you the land to possess it. And you shall divide the land by lot for an inheritance among your families. And to the more shall you give more inheritance. And to the fewer shall you give less inheritance. Every man's inheritance shall be in the place where his lot falleth. According to the tribes of your fathers you shall inherit. So what's he talking about? He's talking about dividing the land. He's talking about dividing the promised land. Verse 55, but, here's the warning, but if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land, notice who he's talking about. He's talking about the people that live in the promised land, the land of Canaan. If you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those people, those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. So Paul knows when he uses the terminology in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Thorns in, my, and thorns in the flesh. He knows that he's speaking. Very specifically he is speaking about something that's referenced in the Old Testament. That refers to people. Now let me jump ahead for you a little bit here. Uh, take this a little bit out of order. But I think it will help you understand a little better. What is Paul's thorn in the flesh? Paul said it was persecution. I'll prove it to you when we get there. But Paul said it was persecution. You'll find by looking at the scripture that that persecution came primarily, not entirely, not exclusively, but primarily through the Jews. So when Paul uses a Jewish term, when he's inspired by the Holy Ghost to use a Jewish term that God warned the Jews about concerning the inhabitants of the land, if they didn't take care of them, they would be thorns in their, uh, pricks in their eyes and thorns in their sides. He's not talking about, and he knows the Jews know, that he's not talking about physical affliction. He knows that they would know that he's talking about personalities. Who are the personalities that the devil is inspiring and using to work against Paul? The Jews primarily. Now, Paul knows that it's the work of the devil, not the work of the people. For example, over in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul's the one that, or Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. How did he learn that? How did Paul learn that? By realizing that the people that were coming against him, the Jews that primarily that were coming against him, were not the problem. The problem was the work of the devil working through, in and through those people. So he didn't attack the people back, the people that were attacking him. He didn't defend himself or try to attack them in response. Instead, he tried to attack the influence behind their work or behind their intent, which was the work of the devil. Paul did not write about his thorn in the flesh in a vacuum. It was a part of his ministry for what we know of is 14 years. We don't know how much more than that it was. Because we don't know exactly the date that Paul died. But we know it was at least 14 years that Paul's dealing with this day after day after day after day after day. Let me show you another example. In, 
Oh, where is it? Joshua chapter 23. This is when the children of Israel are taking the promised land. Joshua's words of warning before he makes his farewell address to the people. They've, they've uh, basically conquered the promised land. But that kind of gives the wrong idea. That, the, the idea that they conquered the promised land means that they've wiped everybody out and nobody is there except them. And that's not the case. The fact is there were some people that, that remained entrenched in the promised land. And the tribes that were given that part of the territory as their inheritance were still commissioned and, and instructed to get rid of the people. But for some, it took decades for them to, to dislodge, particularly in the, around the area of Jerusalem. Joshua chapter 24. Um, let's start in verse 11. Joshua speaking, he said, Take good heed therefore unto yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Else if you do anywise, go back and cleave unto the rem- remnant of these nations, meaning the nations that they dispossessed from the promised land. Don't take in their customs or anything like that. Even these that remain among you and that shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they unto you know for a certainty if you marry any of their people that are left. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares, they people, they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. Until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. What does Paul know? Paul knows that there are at least two. Well, he knows there are three. But this is the second example we see in the Old Testament where the Jews are warned against the people that they do not dispossess from the land. If they allow the people, the personalities to remain, these people will be thorns in their eyes. Is he talking physical affliction? Is he talking sickness or disease? No, he's talking about annoyances. He's talking about people that will work against them to the degree that in this case, they'll perish from off the land. Let me show you the last one. And that is over in 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are the last words of David. 2 Samuel chapter 23. Let's start in verse 1. It says, Now these be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel, said, The Spirit of the Lord spake by me, and his word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. He's telling what God told him about being king. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds as the tender grass springing up out of the earth by clear shining after rain. Although my house be not so with God, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and sure, for this is all my salvation and all my desire, although he maketh it not to grow. But, he's talking about his house versus the children of the devil, Gentiles. But the sons of Belial, sons of Belial, he's talking people, personalities, individuals. But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. What's he talking about? He's talking about the, the Gentiles that are the enemies of Israel. 
are like thorns unto them. So here's three examples that Paul knows because he's memorized the law and the prophets. So when Paul uses the example, back to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul uses the example, and he could have described it any way he wanted to, the Holy Ghost didn't have to inspire him to use these terms or this term, this terminology. God could have described this any way that he desired and had impressed Paul to do it. But he didn't. He used something that has an Old Testament reference. And every time the reference is used in the Old Testament, it speaks of personalities, not things, people. Paul said, and lest I should be exalted above measure, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse um, 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of revelations, there was given to me the th- a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. To buffet me. Now here's something that's interesting. The word buffet is a, is a verb. And it literally means, look this up for yourself, it literally means ill treatment of others. Now let me ask you a question. How does sickness qualify as ill treatment of others. Not only that, but every time the word buffet is used, not only in the Bible, but also in, in uh, corresponding literature of the day that Paul wrote in, this word bl- buffet means to deliver blow after blow. So very simply, by the, by the definition of the words, the terminology in the Greek language itself, it means very simply this. If sickness was the thorn in the flesh, then Paul didn't just have one sickness. He had sickness after sickness after sickness after sickness after sickness. If that were the case, wouldn't we know? Wouldn't we have some record of it in the Scripture? No, in fact, this word is used when describing the ill treatment of others by mob rules. For example, the Bible talks about how Jesus was buffeted by the Roman soldiers. It was delivered unto him blow after blow after blow. It qualified as ill treatment by the Roman soldiers when they beat him. Now, why don't we take the same word, the same terminology, and say that when Jesus was in Pilate's court, when he was, being, uh, when he was before the Roman soldiers and commanded by Pilate to, to treat him poorly and stuff, why don't we say that they gave him eye disease? There's exactly as much scriptural evidence and scriptural possibility for that to take place as there is for Paul. Exactly. Because we know where it came from. Paul says where it came from. He does not say it was the messenger of God. It says it was the messenger of Satan. Now this word messenger is interesting. Remember how we saw in the the Old Testament three examples in the Old Testament? How that thorn always refers to personalities. This word messenger is also translated angel. It's used 188 times in the scripture. 188. 181 of the 188 times it's translated angel. Now, would anybody ever take any use of the word angel in the Scripture in any way whatsoever and think that it's talking about a thing rather than a personality? Would that even cross anybody's mind to do so? Nope. 181 times it's translated angel. It's the Greek word angelos. Seven times it's translated of the 188 is translated messenger. Never is the scripture used or the word used in translated when it's translated messenger to mean anything other than a personality? Never. So therefore, if the example that the Holy Ghost gave Paul to use about thorns, the phrase thorns in my flesh, is, uh, is uh, uh, applicable 
to the three times in the Old Testament that Paul knows about before he writes this as meaning personalities or referring to personalities, then we'd have to say that the Holy Ghost is extremely explicit and consistent in what he's saying. Furthermore, let me skip down to verse 9. I'm sorry, verse 8. Paul said, for this thing, what thing? This assignment of the enemy, this messenger of Satan, for this thing, this work of the enemy against him. I besought the Lord thrice that it, remember I told you to remember the word it, that it might depart from me. Both Rotherham's and Weymouth's translations translate that personal pronoun either he or him. Now, folks, don't think that Rotherham or, or Weymouth, either one, were trying to prove healing from some point of view or disprove the idea of Paul's thorn in the flesh as we understand it today. They're just simply, and, and they're renowned worldwide. You look up anything you want to about Rotherham's translation and him, uh, the, the individual himself, and Weymouth is the same thing. You'll find out that they were the most respected of, it, of people on the earth. Nobody has anything bad to say about them, and they are extremely rec- uh, recognized as, as scholars. Now, that doesn't mean everybody translated it that way, but they did. And they felt like they had a reason to do so based on the language that's used. What language? Messenger is angel. A messenger or an angel is not a thing. It's not an it. It's a him. So Paul said, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it or he might depart from me. Now that sheds a little bit different light on it. Because if it is a personality, as described in verse 7, and not only the the use of the word uh, thorn, the use of the phrase thorn in the flesh, but also the use of the verb buffet to deliver blow after blow. Also, the word messenger, which means angel, those things point to a personality rather than a thing. Why in the world does the church world then claim with such vehemence that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a thing? What basis do they have to do so? Just from what we've heard so far, and there's a lot more to talk about, but just from what you heard so far, what, what basis, what foundation does anybody have to say that Paul had any sickness or disease? Folks, there's one scripture that people base Paul's eye condition or eye trouble on. And I'll show you what that is. Paul says in verse 8, for this thing, or the, for this thing, this condition, this situation, I besought the Lord that three times that he might depart from me, the angel of Satan, that he might depart from me. And the Lord said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul concludes, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Let me ask you a question. If Paul went in to his prayer sick, prayed three times that God would heal him, and God said no, then how in the world does Paul come out of that prayer still sick, saying the power of Christ is resting upon him? How is that possible? See, the power of Christ would change the situation. And so if his situation is physical sickness or disease, then the power of Christ resting on him would necessitate that he would be healed. And the very fact that Paul concludes from what the Lord told him, whatever you think that is, 
when he concludes that because the Lord told me my grace is sufficient for you, most gladly will I therefore glory that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, he's saying, I found the secret to the power of Christ concerning my situation. If his situation is sickness or disease, then healing has to be his for the power of Christ to rest upon him. Am I making this clear? I want you to understand this. In other words, for Paul to come out of prayer saying, well, I was disappointed, but now I understand God's got a greater purpose. Okay, fine. Then build your doctrine of Paul's sickness or disease. But that's not what he says. He comes out and says, most gladly, therefore, most gladly, therefore, I found something that is good news. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. If infirmities mean sickness, then the power of Christ resting upon him would alleviate or remove the sickness. Furthermore, if God told Paul, no, you're supposed to stay sick for any reason, that's the first time in all of Scripture that Jesus or God himself ever told anybody to stay sick. So Paul would be the exception, not the rule. Furthermore, if sickness is Paul's thorn in the flesh, we know why it occurred, and that was because of the abundance of the revelations, to keep him from being exalted above measure. Certainly, therefore, we would have to conclude that anybody else that is desired or designed by God to stay sick would be for the same reason. I have yet to have anybody come to me and say, Pastor Mike, I've been having visions of the Lord and I want to be healed, but I can't because I'm not supposed to be lifted up in pride. I don't know anybody that would even have the gall to claim that. Yet that's what the church world uses as the doctrine, the foundation, the basis for saying that God doesn't heal everybody. Well, you can't build that doctrine on this. If you're going to build a doctrine on Paul being sick and God telling him to stay sick, you're going to have to build that doctrine around everybody having had the same circumstances that brought about the sickness. In other words, I didn't say that very well, but in other words, everybody that's supposed to stay sick is going to be people that had a vision and caught up into heaven. Back to verse 9. After Paul prayed three times for him, the messenger of Satan, to be, de- delivered, uh, to be delivered or depart from him, the Lord said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Folks, you probably don't know this, but this is the verse that proves without a shadow of a doubt that Paul's condition was not physical affliction. It proves beyond a shadow of a doubt because never, ever, 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 ever is grace applied to the physical body. Never. It's applied to the spirit of man. The Bible talks about, and Paul even talks about, how that the life of God was made manifest in his flesh. How, first of all, I would have to ask, how is that possible if he maintained a sick, the condition of sickness or disease throughout his ministry? How could he say the life of God is made manifest in my flesh if he's walking around sick with this terrible eye disease or whatever it was, ministering to people, saying, well, God won't heal me, but don't worry, he'll heal you, and inspiring faith for people to believe and receive. How is it possible for him, therefore, to say the life of God is made manifest in my flesh? 
I don't have a problem with that. I mean, if Paul came to this church and said, now, don't, don't let my eye disease bother you because it's something special for me, but God will heal you. Okay, well, if I could get past that and, and believe what he said and, and whatever, maybe I could accept some position like that. But once he says, and the life of God is made manifest in my mortal flesh, I'm going to say, whoa, what is that about? Notice he didn't say the grace of God is made manifest in my mortal flesh because grace is not made manifest in your flesh. Grace is a spiritual force applied to the spirit of man. So whatever Paul is asking for has a spiritual origin and a spiritual result. That takes us back to what he told the Ephesians. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in higher heavenly places. What's he saying? He's saying exactly what we talked about before. There's this angel of Satan, this messenger of Satan. A messenger is a person sent from one to another for a specific purpose. The messenger of Satan is a personality, an evil spirit designed to hinder Paul's ministry. What do we know happened to Paul nearly everywhere he went? People stirred up trouble against him. You go through the book of Acts and you'll find that there's only one town that he was not run out of. Only one. It was the town of Berea. Every other place, things got, trouble got stirred up against him, mostly by the Jews. Not always, but mostly. And so the Lord is saying very clearly, you can't be delivered from this, Paul. There's no argument about that. The only question is, what is it he can't be delivered from? Well, let's see if we can identify the, 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 the question so that we can get an answer for that. What does the Bible tell us we're not delivered from? What about sin? Are we delivered from sin? Yeah, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from sin. What about sickness? Well, the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses and with his stripes we're healed. Now, not everybody believes that, but that's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the same blood that Jesus shed for our sins, paid the price for our sicknesses too. Now, again, not everybody believes that, but that's what the Bible says. So if we just accept that for the point of discussion and for the sake of argument at this point, what is it that the Bible says that we're not delivered from? There's only one thing, persecution. Jesus said, they that live godly in Christ shall suffer persecution. I'm sorry, Paul said that. Paul understood that they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution which is why most people aren't suffering persecution. Most people don't live well enough to suffer. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you, but don't worry, I've overcome the world. In other words, Jesus told his disciples, when they persecute you, don't bother about it because I'll give you power to overcome. Now, is it possible, is it possible that that's what Jesus is saying when Paul is saying, let this persecution, this evil spirit, this evil assignment against me be taken from me so that I don't have to suffer this persecution, is it possible that Jesus, who said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, but don't worry, I'll give you power to overcome. Is it possible that he is saying, my, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, and therefore Paul concludes gladly to glory in his infirmities, meaning persecutions, and the result thereof, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the only thing that fits the scripture, folks. It's the only thing that fits. Because, see, if Paul was told by the Lord, no, you've got to stay sick for any reason, then we've got to tear out the pages that says God's no respecter of persons. 
And if you've got to tear out pages because something that the Bible says is not true, then how do you know the rest of it's true? If any word of God is a lie, then the whole word of God is a lie. And this is the only way that it fits. So Paul says, therefore, because I want the power of Christ to rest upon me, notice he said in verse 9 again, most most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Infirmities? Well, what are infirmities? Most people think that infirmities are sickness. Well, then the word infirmity is used sometimes and can mean sickness. But that doesn't mean it always has to. So he says, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, literally weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, in other words, here's what I'm going to glory in. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. What is he saying that the power of Christ dwells or rests upon him in? Infirmities, reproaches, necessities, persecutions, and distresses. Why does he not say eye disease? Why does he not say, therefore, I take glory in this affliction in my body? Why, therefore, does he not say, I take glory in this sickness or this disease that God gave me? In other words, if his thorn in the flesh is sickness or disease like most of the church world teaches today, why is it that he mentions other things? Why does he say reproaches, necessities? Necessities has to do with with financial hardship. That's what it means, lack, hunger. I take glory in those things. Why would he be suffering hunger? Because of the persecution. Because people have been turned away from him. Paul is designed by God to be exalted above measure because of the the abundance of revelations that he was given. But it's the devil that's stirring up trouble against him. It's the devil that's hindering his finances, just like he hinders yours and mine. It's the devil that's turning people against him when all he's doing is trying to tell them how to live the abundant and victorious life in Jesus. So he says, I take pleasure in those things. When the devil tries to stir up trouble against me to keep me from being provided for, I take pleasure in that because God's power will overcome that. I take pleasure in persecutions. Why is he talking about persecutions if his problem is sickness and disease? Why would he go from the power of Christ upon him while he's still sick, as the church world has the idea about, and say that I'll glory in my persecutions? Those don't fit together, folks. Sickness is not persecution. Are you out there? Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. When is he saying that the strength of God comes to him? When the devil stirs up trouble against him spiritually. He's saying that the power of Christ rests upon him. As a result of what the Lord told him. If the Lord told him you got to stay sick. Then where's the power of Christ resting upon you? Let me show you something. Look over in chapter 4 of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4 verse 13. Here's where the church world gets the idea that Paul had eye disease. It's the only place. Galatians chapter 4. Paul is writing to the church at Galatia. 
we've covered this when we went through the book of Galatians in, uh, in some detail. But we understand that the condition of the, the churches in the region of Galatia was such that after Paul left, he spent some time there, started and established the churches in several of the cities in, uh, in the region. The Galatia would be like the southwest part of the United States. There are many cities in the southwest part of the U.S. There are several cities, chief cities, major cities in the, in the uh, region of Galatia. Paul went to different cities in this region and started churches. And after he left, the Jews came in and stirred trouble, stirred up trouble against the preaching that Paul made and turned the people away from the doctrine that he left them. The, the Jews came in saying, well, believing in Jesus, that's fine. Jesus is a good guy and all. But after all, God gave us the law through Moses. So we've got to keep the law of Moses. If you and I had Jesus to that, that's okay. Well, folks, you can't keep both. It's either the law of Moses or Jesus. And so the church wound up being in a mess. And so Paul writes a letter to the Galatians. In chapter 3, he says, "Who?" Is, or chapter 2, I guess it is. He said, who is, no, it's chapter 3. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? In other words, you stupid people, who talked you out of the truth that I gave you? Well, the answer is the Jews. So what does Paul do? Paul writes two letters. Paul writes a letter to the Galatians explaining what it means to be saved by grace and and received by faith alone, not through the works of the law. And he writes a letter to the Jews that we know of as the book of Hebrews. He attaches those two letters together. The reason, one of the reasons that uh, most Bible scholars agree that uh, um, these letters were written together is it's the only explanation you can come up with for why Paul did not identify himself as the author of the book. He identifies himself as the author of the, to the Galatians letter, but not to the, the Hebrew letter, the Jews that he wrote to. Now, what does he write? What's the subject matter of the book of Hebrews? How that the law of Moses is superseded by the sacrifice of Jesus. So when Paul talks about the large letter he wrote, he's not talking about big letters. He's talking about the combination of the law of the letters that we know of as Galatians and Hebrews. Paul probably knows that that part written to the Hebrews is going to be a detached and sent on to Jerusalem. And so, rightly so, he doesn't identify himself as the author if it gets back to Jerusalem because he knows that once people know that he wrote it or it's identified in, by his own admission that he's the author, a lot of people aren't going to hear it. But Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, writing to the church, he said... You know, verse 13, you know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. Now, there's no way that we could take this and say that means persecution. There's no basis for it. He's not saying, you remember how I was persecuted, how my flesh was persecuted at the first. That's not what he's saying. He's got to be talking here about some physical condition. But I want you to notice something. Notice he didn't say, you know my physical condition. He did not say, you are well aware of my disease and how God wants me to keep this. Instead, he says, you remembered how the condition was or what the circumstances were the first time I was with you. At the first implies that it didn't continue. It's not that way now. Doesn't it? If I talked about what we did at the first part of the first of the church or the founding of the church, you wouldn't understand that it's that way now. The fact that I identified that it was back then would mean that it's different than it is now. If not, I'd say, whatever I was talking about, I'd say, it's been this way all along. But that's not what he says. He says, you know how through infirmity of the flesh, 
I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not. Now notice how he calls whatever this condition was, he calls it a temptation. He doesn't even take ownership of it. He doesn't say it's mine. He doesn't say my eye disease. He says my temptation. That implies that whatever this thing is, that whatever this condition is in his flesh is something the devil's trying to make him take ownership of, but he's resisting. Just like you and I are tempted with sickness, the important thing is not to receive it. So he says, you know how that through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first, and my temptation which was in my flesh you despised not. You overlooked it. You looked beyond it, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness you spoke of? In other words, why have you changed your opinion toward me? Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, there's two ways you can take this, only two. And you're going to have to decide for yourself which way you want it. He could either be saying, I had problems with my eyes at the first. The temptation I was experiencing from the enemy, from the devil, in my flesh, was something related to my eyes. Or he could be saying, using just a a phrase, an idiom, that would be like us saying, I like that guy so much, I'd give him my right arm. Well, if you said that about somebody, you don't go start looking for a saw. You mean that you have a special affinity or affection for them and you'd do just about anything for them. Now, those are the only two explanations for what Paul is saying. So it could either be something regarding his eyes and this is the only scripture, the only foundation. There is no corresponding. There is no confirming. There is no uh, approving scripture, approved scripture other than this for coming up with any idea that Paul had anything about his eyes. This is what the church world has built Paul's thorn in the flesh doctrine on. As being eye disease. So which one is it? Paul said it was something at the first. Which one is it? Was it a special problem with his eyes? Or was it just an idiom where he's talking about something using a phrase that's not used in anywhere else in scripture to mean you used to love me and didn't do anything for me? Which one is it? Turn back with me to Acts chapter 14. Let's see what things were like at the first time that Paul went into the region of Galatia. I know I'm out of time, so I'll quit with this. Acts chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. And it came to pass in Iconium. This is the region of Galatia. That they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews. And so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also the Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles. I want you to see that phrase. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and made their minds evil affected against the brethren meaning Paul's company. Long time therefore abode they, Paul's company, speaking boldly in the Lord, which gave testimony unto the word of his grace and granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. That will shut people up. If it's just a debate between two opposing ideas, then people are left to wonder which one's right. But if the one is doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus, that gives them an edge. But the multitude of the city was divided. Doesn't mean everybody got saved. The multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the apostles. Who is Paul and his company, the apostles, who is Paul and his company in opposition to in the city of Iconium? 
Jews. What are they doing? They're stirring people up. They're inciting the crowds against them. That sounds almost like what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 about the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. And it's exactly what takes place. But the multitude of the city was divided and part held with the Jews and part with the, with the apostles. And there was an assault made, a riot. There was an assault made both of the Gentiles and also of the Jews with their rulers to use them despitefully and to stone them. Sounds like ill treatment by others. Now, why is this? Because the messenger of Satan is stirring the Jews up to persecute the apostles. What are they doing? They're preaching the good news of Jesus and doing signs and wonders among the people. Well, no wonder they want to kill them. Got to stop that. They were aware of it, verse 6. They were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derby. Those are other, two other cities in the region of Galatia. If you've got a, a Bible with maps, you can check that out. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. They were aware of it and fled into Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and unto the region, Galatia, that lies round about. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, folks, if you look at the chronology or the timeline of Paul's ministry, this is the time when Paul has his thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. What is it? Is it eye disease? Will you tell me? If it's eye disease, what's causing the people to overcome his condition to, to receive the signs and the wonders being done in verse 3 and now the crippled man being healed in verse 10? In fact, if it's eye disease that causes people to be healed and signs and wonders to be done, I think some of us preachers ought to start praying for eye disease. If that's the secret, I'd be willing but it's not. It's not the way God works. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. I want you to notice something, folks. The healing power of God manifested because the revelation that Paul received about who we are in Christ and what Jesus has done caused him to be exalted among the people. Is Paul exalting himself? No, he's going to stop him. But this is when the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, is already at work. Please notice what is taking place, and please notice who is doing what. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius or Mercury because he was the chief speaker. And then the priests of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands under the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Please notice the position of, of esteem that the people of the city, these pagan idol worshipers, are giving Paul and Barnabas because of the miracles that are being done in the name of Jesus. They're being exalted. Why? Because of what they've been revealed by the Lord. What's been revealed to them in the operation of what belongs to them in, in the name of Jesus. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? They don't walk in and say, it's about time y'all recognized who we are. There's no, 
effort on Paul or Barnabas' part to be lifted up in front of the people. There's no temptation for them to be lifted up in pride. They go in immediately and try to stop it. They say, sir, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all the things that are within, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and the fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And when these sayings, with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. In other words, they preach about God. Don't sacrifice to us. We're servants of God. We're men just like you. It's not us. It's God. Do you see that? Verse 19. And there came thither to those towns, to the town of Lystra, certain Jews. Everybody say Jews. Certain Jews. Those are people, aren't they? It doesn't say there came certain sicknesses. It says, there came certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Now, this word supposing is real interesting. I I got a a friend of mine that's a a Greek scholar, at least he is compared to me, that uh, I asked him about this word supposing. And there's a lot of different ways that you can translate this. It's translated in many other translations thinking that Paul was dead. But the word literally means pertaining to the law. So you could, and and there are other translations that support this, you could conclude that they're saying that we performed all the the rites according to the law to assure his death. This word is used throughout other other, uh, writings of Paul's day to affirm confidence in one sense or another, ownership in one sense or another. So I don't know exactly how to translate this, but we do know this. We do know that they came with the purpose of killing Paul. It could be even to the degree that they brought a doctor with him to test him and check him out to make sure that he wasn't breathing anymore. But we know the Jews came with a specific purpose and that was to leave him dead. And so they either assumed, they thought, or they were assured. You pick for yourself. For me, it's not any harder for God to raise him from the dead than to raise him from near death. I think these people knew what they do and I think they left him for dead. But that's just me. But it says that they supposed that he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed from Bar- with Barnabas to Derby. That's another city of, of Galatia. This is the first time they're there. The first time they're there, Paul is stoned. And when they had preached the gospel to that city, Derba, Derby, and had taught many, they returned again into Lystra and Iconium and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation... Adversity, enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and prayed with them fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. What happened the first time Paul was in Galatia? He got stoned and left for dead. What did he look like when he walked back into the cities the next day? What does it look like when somebody's been stoned? I wonder if Paul had any marks in his body. He said he did. He said in writing to the Corinthians, he said, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord. What does he mean? Well, he means the, the, the places where he was beaten. He means the marks and the scars that he's got from being stoned. And any number of other things. He said he was beaten three times with rods. 
That's where they beat the bottom of your feet almost to the point of death. I'm sure his feet looked mangled up from the results of the beating. See, folks, the Bible never says, even Jesus carries the scars in his, his hands, literally his wrists, from where he was crucified. He's going to have scars on his back when we see him. Paul had scars. When it says that he went back into Lystra and Derby and the Iconium and Antioch and the, the region of Galatia, what did he look like when he got there? Is it possible that people saw him, had heard from the Jews that returned to their own cities like Iconium and Antioch, is it possible that they heard, well, we killed Paul. We won't have to deal with him anymore. And the next day, Paul comes walking into town. What would he have looked like when he came in? It's kind of like Jonah when he was spit out of the mouth of the fish onto the, onto the sand, the shore. What did Jonah look like? Man, I'm sure he was a sight. What would Paul look like after having been stoned and left for dead? These people are professional stoners. They did their job well. Paul is probably swollen up. You ever seen these prize fighters come out of a big fight? Man, they got knots all over their face where the other guy hit them several times or something like that. There's no telling what Paul looked like. Is it possible that Paul's eyes were swollen shut like we see some of these prize fighters come out of their fight even when they win? Is it possible that I, Paul's eyes were swollen shut or he had these big marks on his face so that people looked at him and said, man, I wish I could give you my own eyes. I recognize the hand of God is upon you. I recognize God is with you. I wish I could give you my own eyes. Is that not what Paul is saying when he writes back to the churches at Galatia? We have to, we have to at least accept that's possible, don't we? The other side of that is if they're saying that they have a special love for him because of all that he suffered for their sake. They brought, he brought them good news of Jesus so that they could be saved. What about the guy that was healed in Acts chapter 14? What would he think when Paul came back after having been raised from the dead? Thank you so much for coming. If you hadn't been here, I'd still be crippled. You came knowing the possibility at least that you'd have this trouble stirred up against you. I'd give you anything I have. My right arm, my right leg, my eyes, whatever. If I could do anything for you, I would do it. Wouldn't that be the way you would feel if you were that guy? Where's the sickness and disease there? Paul said it didn't, didn't last. He said, through infirmity of, the flesh, the infirmity of the flesh, I preached unto you at the first. Didn't last. But we sure see evidence of what things were like the first time he was there, don't we? So where do we get eye disease from this? Where do we get any physical disease from this? Where does the church come up with the idea that Paul's thorn in the flesh, number one, was from God when Paul said it was from the devil, and number two, was sickness and disease when Paul said it was persecution? Where do we get this? Folks, this doctrine about Paul's thorn in the flesh being sickness or disease is the number one reason why most people fail to overcome their unbelief. Because the church has used this as the foundation for their doctrine that God doesn't heal everybody. Just look at Paul. But I'll go back to the same point that I asked earlier. And that's very simply this. If Paul, after he had this thorn in the flesh, did not stop preaching healing for everybody, then why should we? If Paul, after having this thorn in the flesh, whatever you want to accept that it is, did, did not stop from ministering healing and getting everybody on the island of Melita healed that was sick, why should it stop us from receiving healing everyone? Are you with me? Paul's thorn in the flesh was exactly what he said it was. It was persecution. And that's the only thing that Jesus didn't redeem you from. 
So what did he give you instead? Grace to overcome. Spiritual strength to overcome the persecution of the enemy. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that your word is clear enough for us to see and understand. Thank you, Father, that healing is for each and every one of us because Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. Father, I pray that if there's any person under the sound of my voice that has allowed this false doctrine, this demonic teaching about Paul's thorn in the flesh being sickness or disease, and that the idea that you refuse to heal him, if there's anyone that's allowed that doctrine to cloud their thinking from the truth of the word, I ask that you would break through it in the name of Jesus so that any and every person that needs healing for their body would hear the truth that Jesus died for all of our sins and he healed all of our diseases and that they would receive healing just as easily as they received Jesus as Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father, for doing a magnificent work in response to simple faith in your word. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen. 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 Well, thank you for sticking with us. I know I went over time, but you don't want to stop that in the middle. God bless you. Have a great week. Hope to see you Wednesday night. Amen.